0: The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shimong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. We take this seat this evening, not for ourselves alone, but for all the many beings, that we and all the many beings may be free of sorrow and suffering, and the causes of sorrow and suffering. That all beings everywhere may be in peace and live in safety. That all beings may be content and free of all forms of injustice and discrimination, war and genocide. May all beings everywhere be reconciled. (coughs) This is our prayer. This is our intention. The art of peace begins with you. Work on yourself and your appointed task. Everyone has a spirit that can be refined, a body that can be trained in some manner, a suitable path to follow. You and I are here for no other purpose than to realize your inner divinity and manifest your inner enlightenment, foster peace in your own life, and then apply the art to all that you encounter. The practice of peace must begin by calming the spirit and returning to the source cleansing the body and spirit by removing all malice, selfishness, and desire. And finally, but not least of all, be ever grateful for the gifts received from the universe, your family, nature, and your fellow human beings. It is important to see that the main point of any spiritual practice is to step out of the bureaucracy of ego, the bureaucracy of me, myself, and I. This means stepping out of ego's constant desire for more, better, and different, for a higher, more spiritual, more transcendental version of knowledge, religion, virtue, judgment, comfort, or whatever it is that the particular ego is seeking. Whenever we approach living our lives from a dualistic notion such as, what about me, or I want more from my relationship, or more out of life, then automatically we separate ourselves from the reality of who and what we are, and suffering Or mental anguish and dissatisfaction compounds. Hello. Good evening. So, last month we talked at great length and began our discussion on the topic of love without the stuff. And most of our discussion last month was centered around loving oneself and the importance. Of being a friend to oneself, the importance of, as Shakespeare put it, to thine own self being true. And that was one hand, one hand of loving without stuff, the kind of love that transforms, heals, renews, and sustains not only relationships, but life as we know it. And this month, we're going to talk about the other hand. And the reason why we're going to talk about the other hand is that there's always two hands. And the other reason we're going to talk about the other hand, as I often enjoy teaching it, is that it's stupid to go through life half-assed no matter what cheek you're left with. (laughs) And so tonight, we are going to talk about that half of two hands, and we use the metaphor of hands Because relationships, as you very well must know it, is work. Life is work. And if you were listening to the ancient words of the Japanese master, he said to us, you and I are here for one purpose and one purpose only. And we're going to begin with that tonight because I am absolutely convinced that Personal difficulty or problems and global difficulty and problems we are witnessing more and more each day are not a function of financial crisis, political crisis, but a function of spiritual crisis. Whenever I have counseled people in the last 38 years and whenever I have experienced my own suffering in life, It has always proven to be, whether it is with a friend, a neighbor, a student, or anyone who comes to me for counseling, and certainly when I look at my own moments in life, a matter of the heart. It is the heart that suffers. It is also the heart that loves and forgives. It is also the heart that is compassionate and kind, and so if we are ever going to see any kind of real and sustainable change in our world and I am going to assume that this is something every single person with me tonight is interested in. If we are ever going to see the horrors of war continually as if never ending, you know, brought upon communities and children and elderly people and mothers and fathers and so forth if we are ever going to see the end of hunger, particularly in a nation so wealthy of ours where every fourth child goes to bed hungry, if we are ever going to see a kind of renewal and transformation in our own personal life that sustains a joy and a peace and a contentment, we need to look at the heart. And when we look at the heart, We are talking about spirituality, and when we're talking about spirituality, we're talking about a path with a heart, but not only with a heart, a path that is definitely um, led, guided, and so forth with wisdom, the wisdom of the heart, or what Buddhists call this Buddha nature. So when we take a look again at the ancient Zen master's words to us, he begins with the most essential thing that must happen that brings about this change, the first seed that must be planted and come to fruition if we are going to see any real and sustainable change. And it has to do with, again, our attitude and our point of view. And when we talked about loving oneself Uh, Last month one of the things we touched upon briefly and I begin with tonight Has to do with loving oneself in a way That we are ensuring by the way we live our life By the thoughts we think the words we speak and the actions we commit We are growing with the wisdom that everything begins with me peace begins with you joy Begins with you. Love begins with you. It begins with me. And one of the problems about a fear oriented culture that is constantly pointing us towards more, towards better and different is the illusion that comes about around the same time we all, myself included, forget who we truly are and begin to live a life taking on numerous personas most of which sustain and support a consciousness of fear. And it is this notion that what we need, what we want, that the solutions to life, whether they be personal or global, exist outside of me, exists apart from me. Let's elect the right president. Let's elect the right representative. Let's find the right spiritual practice always something apart from me. And what is unique about the Buddha Dharma is that no matter how long you live it, and no matter how much you study about it, and no matter how many years you practice it, its most profound message is that change or peace or happiness for you and for the world begins with the individual. Begins with you and begins with me and nowhere else. And until we take what we might call responsibility for that. And by taking responsibility, we can't uh, understand that fully without understanding the other parts of the master statement, which we'll go over in a moment. But in order for us to really bring about the change we look for in our life, the experience of abundance and joy within ourselves, it begins with changing our attitude or point of view from the direction of always looking for the solution out here in the world, whether it is in things or people, whether it is in circumstances or experiences, whatever your or my addiction may be. And you know, when I talked before 12-step groups and other uh, organizations such as 12-steps, I often say to them, there is only one addiction, and it manifests itself in numerous ways, and it is an addiction to which all of us can claim, for all of us are addicts, and that addiction is the addiction that is very egocentric in nature, the addiction to comfort and pleasure. And we learned that, just like an addict is not born an addict, we were not born focused on people, places, and things, or more, better, and different. As I said a moment ago, the, the if you will, the, the blindness, uh, the forgetfulness, the amnesia, whatever metaphor works for you, begins around the same time we forget what we knew without any doubt at birth. We brought this wisdom with us, we knew it, we were confident about it, we identified with it in such a way that to talk about it would have been uh, something not, as the Buddhists say, not talkable, not able to speak about. And maybe that's why infants really don't talk with us when they first show up on the scene. But nonetheless, we are born with the knowledge of our own inherent enlightenment fundamental to all Buddhist teaching is that this practice, this spiritual path, is not about becoming more by becoming a Buddha, it is not about becoming better by becoming a Buddha, and it is not about becoming anybody different than who you truly are by becoming a Buddha, because you are already a Buddha. You were born with this enlightenment and with this wisdom. And we know that for a period of time Different schools of therapy and spiritualities measure differently. Some say for four years, some say for six years, some say longer or shorter. It doesn't really matter. But somewhere along the path, we forget it. Some experience in our life may trigger that. Some um, person in our life may trigger that. But most definitely, we forget it. And at that moment... We enter into what the Buddha called this kind of delusional dream. We enter into this kind of slumber in life. And at that moment, we begin to believe that our purpose, and again, remembering the words of the Master, we begin to believe our purpose is about becoming more, becoming better, and certainly becoming different. And that Consciousness is the source of suffering, is where all suffering comes from and all suffering returns to. And if we never change that, if we never change our attitude and our point of view about the true source of both our suffering and our joy, if we never take responsibility for that which we all commonly seek and desire, and that is the freedom to be ourselves at the level of full self-expression, to love and to be loved, that will never happen. It will never happen for the individual, and it will never happen for the world. The Master says to us, work on yourself and your appointed task. And this self that he talks about has to do with the uh, topic this evening, It has to do with that part of our consciousness that we often refer to as ego. That part of our consciousness that again continually convinces us that just this is not enough. Just this cannot provide. Just this has no value. This consciousness that continually convinces us That if I'm going to be happy, I need to be something more, something better or different. And if our relationship is going to be happy, you need to be something more, better and different. And so we begin with two paradigm shifts. We begin with the shift from looking outward for the answers we all desire in our life. And that is not just one big moment. But every moment. For example, whenever I find myself suffering, whether it's stress or worry or what have you, there is a practice that we will talk about tonight that brings me back to the source, brings me back to the center, brings me back to the self. And it has to do with, again, stepping out of what Trungpa Rinpoche called the bureaucracy of ego the bureaucracy of me, myself, and I. Stepping out of it. And I thought about this before coming here tonight. Last night after my daughter had gone to sleep, I sat up for a few hours in meditation and contemplation, and I cont- I, I thought about you know the moments when I am most happy, most content, most joyful. And for me, at least, I can say honestly, they are almost exclusively those moments when my attention is on other, when my attention is one filled with gratitude for other. And one of the other byproducts of this delusional slumber we find ourselves in at one point in life has to do with again and again and again always putting our attention somewhere else than where we are. And that is why in Zen the focus of practice is this Zazen or mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness meditation is an ancient technique designed to keep us where we are, designed to keep us where everything we are looking for exists. And so I, again, a moment ago as I said, when I really reflect about the moments I am most happy, It is those moments when I am focused on what I have and not what I don't have. And when you do the work of Zen training, Dogen Zenji said, Zen is first the study of the self. So when you begin to study the self, you will notice, and you can do this real simply, by just recalling conversations most conversations that you may have in the course of the day are always about what we don't have, always about what the world isn't, always about you know, this other than what's so for us. And so one of the practices towards achieving this level of love without the stuff, and it has to do with the practice of engaging life skillfully and with wisdom, has to do with not only shifting the paradigm from believing that our source for happiness and joy exists apart from us to within us, but it has to do with, again, shifting where we are always paying attention, bringing it back from attention on what's not so to attention on what's so. That is why one of the exercises, those of you who have trained with me longer or have been here more regularly, have heard me say, in those moments of difficulty where, you know, our brain is beating up our body with stress and confusion, possibly a conversation where we believe something's wrong or we're wrong or someone else is wrong, is to stop and ask the question, how do I know that to be so? How do I know that to be true? And that question is profoundly uh, asked and answered when we are doing the practice of bringing our attention back to what's so in our life. For example, what's so in my life is that I have a four-year-old daughter who just blows my mind. And that might explain to you why, apart from the time I spend with my brothers and sisters in community, the teaching that I do, When I'm not doing that, I'm with her. And the reason why is, again, that's what's so for me. And what's so for us, as is the situation with me and my daughter, and those of you who are parents know, is that no matter how difficult it may get at times, no matter how difficult parenting has proven to be for anyone who is a parent at times, there is still a sense of contentment, a sense of In the final reckoning, all is well. A sense of this will pass. And so it makes it easier to let go of the stuff that keeps us stuck in our complaints, me, myself, and I are not enough, and my life is not enough, and so forth. So that is where the practice of redirecting our attention from what we don't have to what we do have begins to work. And one of the necessary ingredients to be included in that practice has to do with focusing on what we do have and being grateful for that. If we spent more time being grateful for what we do have, and that includes the people in our life, the gifts of our life, You know, whenever we think about, and again, we have a culture that has kind of, well, I will say it, brainwashed us into never being satisfied with our home, never being satisfied with the car we're driving, never being satisfied with the job, never being satisfied with the weather. We can always find something wrong with the weather, can't we? It's either too hot, too cold, too humid, it's raining, there's snow on the ground, and so forth. We can always find something wrong because that's the ego's job. The ego's job is to find what's missing, what it at least perceives to be missing in the person's life. That is its design function in order that it may protect the person from some perceived threat and so forth. And that is why all of the great spiritual masters, all of the great spiritual paths, emphasizes that the purpose of any spiritual practice is singular and exclusive, to learn how to step outside the bureaucracy of ego, the bureaucracy of that part of our consciousness that as long as we are in it, there will be suffering. You are here for no other purpose than to realize your inner divinity and manifest your inner enlightenment. One of the things I have often talked about in the last 38 years has to do with a kind of description of enlightenment. When people ask me, what happens in enlightenment? What happens in that moment? And I will say to them, what happens in the moment has to do with a shift from content to context. It has to do with again a paradigm shift where we move out of a life that is almost exclusively focused on the content, and the necessary content, and the moving around of the content, and the obtaining of more content, and the letting go of other content, to a life where we understand that life is a function of context including my moment-to-moment experience. The context of my life, that is to say, the definition, the very thing or means by which I define my purpose for being alive, why am I here, and the purpose of life itself, literally and exclusively defines the content of one's life. That is why you and I know if we're willing to be honest about it or we get to that age where wisdom dictates it to us, that the content of your life has very little to do with the joy or happiness in your life. Very little to do with it. Because one of the problems about content and when we're focused on it is that content is impermanent. Content is always changing. Content comes and goes. And it always comes and goes in a way you really have no say about when it's going, you know, It just happens, one day you wake up and there it is walking out the door and there's nothing you can do about it. But context, context has to do with something far more deeper and profound. It has to do with the very core of our existence. It has to do with who we really are. And if you've been listening so far, when you and I first showed up on the planet, when we were born, that who we are came into the world content, came into the world peaceful, came into the world with a special kind of joy that was so special that when others collected around you and came to visit you, it made them joyful, it made them happy. And as I often talk about it, and you didn't do anything. You just kind of laid there and hung out. And people were just so happy to be with you. And then some, one day you forget all of that and you go to work to keeping people happy. And how stupid is that? You see? So enlightenment can be compared to, again, what I call this paradigm shift where we discover the context in life. And this is also, we can talk about the Buddha's discussion on skillfulness here. He would ask you, let me ask you this. How's that definition of your life working for you? I say, because I know one that consistently and regularly is sustainable and works. And I like the way the Master says it. You are here for no other purpose than to realize your inner divinity and manifest your inner enlightenment. So I might ask you this. What do you think your life would look like? How much would your life change if this became the context of your life? What would your life look like and how much would your life change if this became the context of your life now what you need to know is that it is the context for life all life when you you know when you take a look at nature for example everything in the forest lives mm-hmm. as a benefit for the forest and everything in the forest you see all life is a divine manifestation and a manifestation of an enlightenment of a wisdom of a knowledge that says if I'm going to be happy the forest needs to be happy and if the forest is going to be happy I need to be happy and that is where we have two hands we need to work on ourselves as the master says And by working on our own happiness, by working on our own joy and our own peace, we benefit the forest. But we cannot see the forest as the source of that happiness because what will we do? We'll destroy the forest. And just as we are seeing on this planet today as we continue to see the forest as something we need to use for our benefit exclusively, we are killing ourselves. You know, it's often, often I say to people, if every single human being were to suddenly disappear off the planet tomorrow, life would thrive, renew, and go on. But if those resources that nature provides us, which the Japanese call the great benefactor, those resources that nature provides us, were to all disappear, you and I would die in a matter of time. We could not survive. So His Holiness the Dalai Lama might say, so how important really are you? (laughs) He said, think about that. But the truth of the matter is, is that we are important and that's part of the problem. Someone once said, it is not our darkness or our inadequacies we fear, it is our magnificence and the power. It is our light that we fear, you're know saying. Because once you discover that you are light, that you are necessary, that you are a force of nature, you can't just lay around anymore, you know No more TV. And that's a problem for some people. You are here for no other purpose than to realize your inner divinity and manifest your inner enlightenment. What would your life look like if that is how you began to plan all your choices and decisions? And also, notice what comes up with that question. Notice what shows up beside that question, always. And that which shows up is ego's centricity. Notice that, because often when I ask people, you know, people will say to me, I don't have time. People will say to me, I've got so much to do. People will say to me, there's not enough hours in the day. And I will say to them, but this is what keeps you alive. Your life depends on it, you're sick. Your life depends on it. So one of the first thing that comes up <coughs> probably, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, whether you're willing to be honest with me or not. When we ask the question, what if suddenly my life became about the realization of my inner divinity and the manifestation of my inner enlightenment? What comes up for most people is a sense of fear. What will I have to give up for that? What will I have to do different for that? How inconvenient might that be? I see. And I point that out to you not as a kind of uh, sarcasm, but as an effort to help you see for yourself the grip the bureaucracy of ego has on us. Most people practice their spirituality dualistic, and if you've been listening to anything, the bureaucracy of ego is dualistic. Most people practice it either or. I'm either going to do the stuff that I know doesn't sustain my health physically, mentally, or spiritually, or I'm going to go do the stuff that are spiritual, that is spiritual, that supports me, and so forth. Today I'm going to, as the ancients and masters might say, spend my day lying and pilfering. Tonight I'll go to yoga, or tonight I'll go to meditation. You're this dualistic approach to living one's life is not only insufficient for the experience of everything life has to offer us, everything that is inherent in life, but it is also uh, stupid because it has never worked. So again, what would your life look like if suddenly the context of your life shifted? Or if it's already there, what does your life look like? And When the context is that the reason I was born and everyone else was born, the reason my daughter was born, and I'll come back to that in a moment, and all other children are being born at this very moment, is the realization of their inner divinity and their inner enlightenment, the manifestation of that, that coming from within into the world, When we talk about the manifestation of our enlightenment, we are talking about the life of what the Buddhists call of the Bodhisattva. The life of the Bodhisattva is the supreme icon of the manifestation of enlightenment. And when we take a look at the life of the Bodhisattva as the Buddhists speak about it, it is a life where again, we are bringing to life the change, we believe life needs. We are bringing our own inherent joy and peace and contentment to everything we do, whether it's in the workplace or at home, whether it's in the way we drive cars, whether it's in the way we talk to people, whether it's in the way we are listening right now. We are bringing this inner enlightenment to that. We bring it as a manifestation and an expression of our own inner divinity. But if we don't know our own inner divinity, if we don't realize it for ourselves, as I often say, you can't give what you don't have. And if you don't have the experience of it, how can you bring it? And if you don't bring it, as I often say, mostly to groups of young students when I speak before them, I tell them you're the missing link. If you want to know why the world is the way it is, you're the missing link. And I tell you that also. You're the missing link. Because if you don't manifest your own enlightenment in the world, that's missing. And that manifestation, like the links of a chain or the threads of a web, is necessary for the whole web. When we focused on the realization of our inner divinity, and another way of saying that is the realization that what we want more than anything else is to know we are loved and to love. We want that more than anything else because anything divine, anything spiritual, is a matter of the heart. And if a spiritual path doesn't have a heart, It's not a genuine spiritual path. So again, what would your life look like if now, and you know what? It's never too late. It's never too late. So what would your life look like if now you decided to love your spouse, to love your children, to love your friends, to love your home, to love what you have, to be grateful for that? What would your life look like if you began... to live it purposefully, on purpose, as a means to realizing my inner divinity, my inner enlightenment, and the manifestation of that in everything I do. And that can be, that not only can be done anywhere, that needs to be done anywhere. So as I said a moment ago, when I talk about my daughter as an example in being a parent, I do that because parenting is in my opinion probably the single most powerful ground for cultivating what we're talking about. By that I mean when you take a look at Webster Buddha's definition to parent it's not what most of us have come to understand parenting is about. It's certainly not what our Western culture considers parenting to be. When you take a look at the real definition you know the fact not the philosophy, the real definition, the fact, to parent, it says to parent is to bring forth. To parent is to bring forth. To parent a child is to create the ground for that child to realize his or her inner divinity and manifest his or her inner enlightenment. Now, most of us in this room, I know I did, missed out on parents like that. You'll see, Most people will tell you they missed out on a parenting experience like that from their own parents. But that's not a good enough excuse. But I would prefer to use the word parenting, as Webster defines it, with living. That the role of everything we do, whether it is in our personal relationship with our spouses or our children, our relationship with our neighbors and friends or the community, Our relationship with fellow workers in the workplace, our employer and other employees. Whether it is with any, wherever we are, whatever it is we are doing, our role is to parent. Our role, my role, is to live my life in such a way that I am bringing forth, not only from me but from others by my own words and my own actions, their inner divinity and the manifestation of their own enlightenment. It's kind of like I'm giving everyone permission to be who they truly are. I'm giving everyone an okayness to say I love you without any concern about. If you go to our new website, there's a quote on the part, uh, the link that's what is Zen, that I wrote up myself. So I took the koan what is the sound? Have you heard the sound of one hand clapping? And we, uh, we uh, translated it this way. Have you heard the sound of your own laughter before you became concerned about what others would think? I know that my daughter laughs in a way that makes me laugh. Just her laughter makes me laugh. Not the reason why she's laughing, but just her laughter. So if I don't get the joke, that she gets all i need to do is look at her and i laugh You're saying so have you heard the sound of your own laughter before you be cons- before you became concerned about what others think about the way you're laughing have you heard the sound of your own voice before you began to be concerned about what others think about what you're saying and what you believe and what your opinion is and what your position is Any authentic spiritual path is about stepping out of the paradigm of ego that keeps us stuck in a fear-oriented consciousness that keeps us constantly, uh, if you will, perpetuating a fear-oriented culture. Pema Chodron talks about it in this way, what I just said. She says that when you ask why is there war, you need to begin with you whether you understand it or not peace begins with me and war begins with me that if i want to end the war in the world i need to end the war in here i'm saying so everything begins and ends in here and when in here i am constantly dominated or what is going on in my inner life is this domination of fear, this domination of worriment, this domination of concern about what others think. their suffering compounds. So today I took Katie to the park, and the park was filled, packed. Okay? And Katie wanted to play a game that we play at home. And it's a kind of game that's kind of like when Katie wants me to come to her tea party dressed up in a tutu and, and a shroll, you say. So in the park, I had to play this game where everybody had to hear me ask questions because when you meet my daughter, which you gotta meet my daughter, when you meet my kid, she directs everything. She has the script already ready for you. So she will tell you, Daddy, when I ask you this, you say, it's kind of like that. So there's no work involved. You just show up, and she's got it already handled from beginning to end. And so the script today was we were going to play play the game that she calls Sailing Doggy, Sailing Puppies. And I say to her, no, it's Sailing Puppies. She says, we're going to play Sailing Puppies. Okay. So we play this game, Sailing Puppies, in the park that's crowded with people. And it just so happened, and karma is wonderful, that where we were, the fathers were with their kids, and most of them were boys. They wanted to be men. And there I was playing a game. Uh, hello, how are you? Uh, do you have a doggie? And Katie would go, Yes, I have two doggies. Which one would you like? And this went back and forth, back and forth. And lo and behold, even the Zen master, I could hear my ego saying, Do you realize how? foolish you must look to others (coughs) and then I heard me say and if that matters you will miss out what do you think One. you see and this is what spiritual practice is about when the Buddha was asked what is Buddhism by a very philosophical learned man one day who complained that everything he's read and heard was just too complicated for him to understand and invited the Buddha to say it in a simple term. The Buddha said, I will say it in a simple term and you will not understand it. So here it goes. When you find what works, do that. When you find what doesn't work, don't do that. That's Buddhism. You're saying. So when we talk about The shift of the paradigm needed to start the work of any authentic spiritual practice, which is stepping out of the bureaucracy of an egocentric point of view that literally defines for us our choices. See, we like to think we're free, but in reality we're not. When you really look at it, we never make a free choice. We make a choice almost exclusively defined for us, by the context of our life. And if you've been listening so far, and if you've been listening to me at all over the years, you need to know by now that most people's context for their life is not their context. It was given to them. It was defined for them. When uh, I sit down and talk to people about my own history, you know, they ask me about how does a young Catholic boy come to Buddhism and so forth, and then they go back to the beginning, and I say to them, well, you need to know that when I was born, and you read this in my book, I wasn't born to my parents. you see. to my parents, I wasn't born. What was born was the, you know, from my father's point of view, who was a successful businessman created his own financial empire and I was the firstborn son. so guess what I was the heir to the Empire, the kid that will take over when I'm gone. you see So I tell people I was born in a truck you see and I came out driving a truck you see and that's who I was for many years until I woke up and realized that wasn't who I was. Now, to my mother who is Sicilian, and who grew up in a community with gorgeous Sicilian men and women around her, I was the next Italian stallion who would marry and give her many grandchildren, you say, Well, you need to know they have both been disappointed, (laughs) if you will. So, most of us aren't even aware that the choices we make in our daily living from moment to moment aren't even our choices. They are usually if not exclusively a function of the context of our life and most of us are operating out of a context for life that either was given to us by our parents who gave, who got it from their parents and who got it from their parents or was given to us by a particular religion that we believe in or was given to us by a political position. You know when you ask most people why they hate conservatives, they can't tell you. Or when you ask most conservatives why they hate liberals, they can't tell you. What you end up with is well that's what conservatives are supposed to do. Conservatives are supposed to blame the liberals. And that's what liberals are supposed to do. Liberals are supposed to blame the conservatives. But when you take those two individuals which goes on in Washington regularly if you've been following it You know, when you take the conservative out uh, out from in front of the camera and the liberal out from in front of the camera, they're playing golf together, you see. And they're having drinks together, you see, and so forth. So again, most of us don't even realize that even our choices from day to day are a function of a bureaucracy of ego. And if we never step outside that bureaucracy, that's what we're left with. Peace begins with you. Work on yourself and your appointed task. I, want to, I touched upon working on yourself to mean working on your attachment or stuckness in this bureaucracy. But working on your appointed task points to what mindfulness training and meditation is about. What any spiritual training is about. And it has to do with living your life in equanimity. The appointed task is whatever is at hand. It's whatever is at hand. And what the Master is saying to us here is that whatever you are doing, do it with your whole heart. Do it as if your life and the life of everyone else depends on. This is your appointed task at the moment. Just as any authentic student of Zen knows, hears it from the teacher over and over again, reads it in Zen books over and over again, that whatever is going on in my life at the moment is my teacher and not oppositional to my life. Therefore, I need to really be with the moment just as it is and just as it isn't. So when the master says to us, work on your appointed task, he says to live your life outside the bureaucracy of ego. My opinion about what I gotta do, my feelings about what I gotta do, doesn't matter. And again, if you've ever parented, you know what that's like. In parenting, my daughter doesn't care what I think about. You see, she only cares what she thinks about. You see, because what she thinks about is the only world she knows. Not because she's selfish and arrogant, but because her world is the only world she knows. She's only been here for four years, and so forth, and all of that. So to take care or work on my appointed task is to live in equanimity, to bring an intention. And whenever you hear me start with a prayer, here and at the (coughs) monastery, I always say this is not only our prayer, but this is our intention, to bring an intention. To be a benefit to either the task at hand, the person at hand, the world at hand, as it is and as it isn't. Any questions? Is that one? Hi said to create ground to help one bring forth their own divinity. Is that correct? To cultivate the ground as, for example, a gardener may cultivate the earth to bring forth the full fruition, the fullest potential. Got it? Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Hi. Hi. I haven't seen you in a while. Hello. Yeah, how are you? (laughs) Changing. (laughs) Okay. How do you you mean by um, bringing something? How do you go about that? How do you know you're doing that for, say, your child or people in your life? That's the difference between living each moment on purpose and intentionally Mm -hmm. And living our life, unfortunately, what the context of ego you know, has, has kind of manufactured. And most of us are, are living our life reactionary. Mm-hmm. We're not responding to life. And in the word respond, we find responsibility. Okay. So to bring forth, as I talk about it, means to bring my intention for the moment Okay? So, you know, my intention when I'm parenting my daughter is to do everything I can for her so that hopefully this bureaucracy won't affect her as much as it did me. (laughs) Okay? All right? So, to bring forth in the workplace is to do my job with attention, with honor. I may not like the boss, but this is the choice I've made. I've chosen to be here. And again, you can use that in any example. So whatever it is I'm doing at the moment, I'm bringing my intention to that moment. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing, you know, I'm living it purposefully, m- mindfully. I'm not just here, say? Because when I'm just here, I'm living reactionary, you know. It's nothing but stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response. So, in Buddhism, there is there is a teaching. Between stimulus and response is the truth. Is peace. Is love. And in meditation, that's the practice to get there, to be there in a way that you become so thoroughly familiar with it. And this is part of uh, the answer to your question also. We practice meditation consistently and regularly so that our familiarity with that place within us that is always tranquil becomes so intimate that we are able to call that up, to muster that up because we know it so well And bring that to the moment. And bring that to the moment. You see? Mm -hmm. So that's why I teach my students at the monastery, when I teach meditation, (coughs) that what you're training on the cushion informs when you're not on the cushion. So part of mindfulness living, you get the techniques out of of mindfulness meditation. So mindfulness living is like meditation. Mm -hmm. In meditation, you have to stop. In meditation, you have to control the breath. In meditation, you have to let go. So one of the practices in mindfulness living is is that when the stress starts to surface, you stop. You take that breath. You control it so that you're breathing like you would on the cushion. You release the breath and you release your attachment or obsession, whatever it may be, at the same time. But if I don't know that experience, if I've never, uh, well not never, because that's what we came with, mm-hmm. and that's who we are. But if I, today, years later, if you will, have forgotten what that's like, I can't bring that. And what, when I'm not bringing that, I love what Pema Chodron says. Mm-hmm. She says, at every moment, we are either opening or closing. Nothing else. In every moment, we are either opening closing and when we open that's what we're bringing forth you're asked how do you know that Mm -hmm. the evidence of that is that what we're bringing to the moment is our fullest sincerest attention to be whatever we need to be for the moment so you know I talk about this uh, when I I, when I talk about something I call taking care of business Buddhism Mm -hmm. taking care of business Buddhism works like this When the family is at the dinner table and the child (coughs) knocks over the milk, okay? Instead of screaming and yelling at the child or berating the child for how much milk costs these days and how they need to be more this and pay attention, just clean up the milk, okay? Just clean up the milk. That's what we call taking care of business. Now, you can do that only if your intention Is to bring loving kindness and compassion to every moment. If that's not your intention, ego's grip on us will always make us just react. We'll just react. Because the ignorance of ego is convinced that when the child spills the milk, it's a threat to me. Because I work so hard for that milk. You see what I mean? That's ego's perception. You know what I'm saying? So that's the difference. Thank
1: you. Yes. Your
0: yes. Taking your example of a, a boss that you don't get along with or that how do you know when your ego is putting itself with gratitude into rationalization mode instead of making a change that perhaps you need to make? How, you, say, say that in other did. words, what what if you really should change your job but your ego is is using gratitude as kind of a rationalization method? Well, my rule of thumb is: if you don't want to be there, leave. How do you how do you know that? And how do you know because you, you don't want hijacking? Because you don't want to. You see, it's like relationships. If you go through your relationship with someone where you're always thinking, "What am I doing here?" That's how you know. And the same is true at work. Now, Zen uh, Zen masters talk about this that way. They say listen to that inherent information, okay? So it's like that. It really is like that. If you don't want to be there, leave, okay? Because then what happens, whether it's the workplace or the relationship, your whole presence is about trying to want to be there, (laughs) okay? And when you're trying to want to be there, you're not bringing the fullest quality you have to offer of your attention to the moment, okay? So, no matter how tired, and you know you were a father, no matter how exhausted I might be, even after I had my two heart attacks, okay, and how difficult at times it was to be present to a two-year-old a three-year-old, and now a four-year-old, okay? I knew I wanted to be there. Thank you, Okay. See, that's where this paradigm shift from content to context applies also. Because the reason why we don't, no, let me say this again. The reason why we say to ourselves, I don't know for sure. You do know for sure. You do know what you want. You always know what you want. And when that comes up, when that answer comes up, the bureaucracy of ego is to bring doubt to that. Well, you know, if you leave, how are you going to pay the bills? You know, if you leave, you're going to be alone. You see? And that's where the doubt comes in. Not that you don't really know the answer, you see? So it's kind of like the saying, which is a code for Zen teachers. Zen teachers. Zen teachers, if they're worth anything, operate in choosing students by this code, okay? If something really matters to you, you'll find a way. If something doesn't, you'll find an excuse, you see? Because that really is how clear life really is and the clarity that, you know, uh, we have inherently within us. So my answer to whether it's a job-related issue or a personal relationship or anything else, if you don't want to be there, leave. For not only your benefit, but everybody else's. I'm saying, And that's how you become a benefit for the workplace, by leaving. <laughs> 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 there is nothing, I, you know, I, I hear Chico, because, you know, I've experienced this also. There's nothing, and you know it, more suffering-bound than to do something you really don't want to be doing, to be somewhere you really don't want to be. And you know what? What's amazing is uh, two, two, three, four-year-olds, they know. You can pretend all you want, and they know. And you know what? You do, too. Because that's another part of the wisdom we Buddhas bring when we enter the world. We know. You know. I know. Anyone else? So, what is the work? What is the training? And I want to say uh, something again about that. And I say again because I've said it again and again and again. Spirituality, whether you want to call it spiritual practice or spirituality, is training. And if you don't approach it as training, you will not get the maximum benefits out of it. It is training to, for example, the discipline of giving my full attention requires training. It requires training. It requires, as the example I gave a moment ago, being mindfully aware of the duality of ego. The part that loves my daughter and has so much joy when I'm with her and wants to play with her, and the part that says, you might look foolish and stupid to all the other guys around here. It takes training to be able to stay in the middle there. And in the middle is where you get the best out of the moment. You don't get it over here, and you don't get it over here. You get it here, you see, because that moment became for me also another learning experience. And the lesson was far much more than just that I love my daughter. The lesson was about the stuff that I need to continually work on. And one of the things about nature is this. If I'm doing something, you know, Jesus says to his students, you know, how a man performs in small things is how he will perform in great things. You see? So the Zen uh, translation of that is, if I'm doing this here in small things, I'm doing it everywhere else in my life. So I don't need to, you know, have the years and years of examination of my life. I need to get very specific and intimate in my training and in my practice of, uh, you know, in looking at my life and looking at how I'm living my life. And if I'm doing this in, over in this tiny little place over here, I'm more, most likely doing it everywhere else. That's why we say in Zen, training on the cushion is all that's necessary because the cushion is an appropriate place, a, a conducive ground for your life. That is, if you've ever done training on the cushion, you know this, your entire life shows up there. You see, all the stresses, all the anxiety, all the anxiousness, all the impatience, all the excuses show up when you're in a Zendo with other students, with a Zen teacher, and you're expected to sit for 30, 60, 190, a whole day. You see certainly shows up there. And you'll find that when you start to really examine your life from a place of a student, and that's all we ever are, the Buddha said, all of us, including him, including me. When you uh, live your life as a student, where you are viewing things as everything is the lesson, you find that to be absolutely true. So if I just change this little place over here, everything changes. Everything changes. Everything. Anyone before the break? Well then, here it is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my, 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 I took my daughter to see her grandfather this morning who was at supposed to be at his place of business and she knows that when she goes, he's in his office and she loves to go in because it's so fascinating all the stuff around it and he's always got candy in there and everything else but this morning uh, he was in his car in the parking lot waiting to go so we like pulled up parallel to each other and she got out of the car and I got out of the car and he opened the door and they had their interchange and she said to me, but daddy are we going inside? I said no, Papa is leaving and so They gave each other a hug and kiss goodbye, and Pop Pop drove off, and Katie said, And there goes Pop Pop. (laughs) (laughs) They know. Okay. Thank you. One of my uh, daughter's favorite Disney movies is the movie The Lorax. And if you've not seen it, you should see it. And we watch it at least 16 times a week. (laughs) I know it from back to front. I wake up in the morning singing its songs. Um, but there's a line in the, in the movie where uh, this kind of mystical character is explaining to a young boy that a seed is not just about being a seed, it's about what it can become. Mm-hmm. And whenever we talk about the realization of one's inner divinity and the manifestation of one's inherent enlightenment, Whenever we talk about the definition of any authentic or genuine spiritual practice, that is what we're talking about. That in every moment, for example, one of the jobs that I often say that I have is uh, myth-busting. One of the myths about the Western spiritual culture, when people talk about being in the moment, being present to the here and now, they think that that's a space that is... Uh, absent of the past or the future. But in fact, the true here and now includes the past and the future. So that whatever happens in the now, in this moment, that is why enlightenment, authentic awakening only happens in the present moment because it has, whenever anything happens in the present moment, in the here and now, it has the power of transforming the past and the future. So life is not just about now and life is not just about this moment. It's about what it can become. And what it can become is only limited by your delusional or fearful perceived limitations and barriers. It can only be limited by that. Its truest potential is infinite. When the Buddha was asked to define what a human being was, his definition was an infinite energy field of potential. An infinite field of potential. That is what we are at every given moment. So when we find ourselves again stuck in the (coughs) thought, I can't, I'm not capable, uh, I'm not able, this is ego. This is ego because ego perceives the world from limitations whether it is its judgments whether it is its criticisms it perceives life from the place of limitations don't go there don't go there be careful over there and so forth and so in any given moment when that is what's showing up for us that is a signal there's work to be done And as the Master said, attend to your appropriate work. Attend to it now. There's work to be done. So when we take a look at the life of the spiritual warrior, the life of the person who tonight hears these words and decides to commit, if not already, but commit to really applying them in their daily living, we need to understand the four supports, we'll begin with that, necessary. And again, whenever we talk about any of the content or the specifics of spiritual practice, when the teacher talks about it, the teacher is talking about appropriate or conducive contexts. That is to say, again, a context allows for something to show up. A context literally determines whether or not something is going to show up or not show up depending on the context. So again, most of us are obsessed with the content of our life, and that feels very limited to us when we really think about it. Our relationships feel limited, they feel stuck, they feel restrained, because we're always coming from the content of the relationship, how he's acting, how she's saying that particular thing to me, the way he's looking at me, whether he likes me or not, or pays attention to me or not. That's all about the content. If the lover is focused on exclusively the context, a context that is about the context of love and being loved, and loving as we talk about love in Zen as that unconditional stuff, then that allows for anything to show up in the relationship and never show up as oppositional to the relationship. So that what's always at hand in the relationship is not only what we are now, but the potential of what we can become, if we open ourselves to it. So when we talk about the four supports, as I'm going to define them here this evening, each of them is a context. It has to do with a per, the way I view life and what is necessary. And in Zen, or any authentic spiritual practice, the role of a context is dual both supporting each other it is intended to challenge and by challenge i mean provoke us a authentic context in spirituality is both challenging and provocative what i mean by that it is always reminding us we are an infinite field of potential and it is always calling us to maximize that potential and if you're listening we never really fully maximize it because the moment we get to what we think is, is the maximum, there's always more, because it is infinite. It is infinite. Now, why is it important to understand it that way? It's important to understand it that way because it says to us that in every given moment, any moment, no matter how difficult the moment may be, particularly, again, in relationships, whether they be personal or job-related or any other type of relationship, at any given moment, the availability of everything we need for love and compassion to show up in that moment is always present and the limitations we may think preventing us are our own, are our own. And so when you look at the four supports of the practice necessary, the four supports support the practice which we'll also talk about. So when you look at the four supports, these are the appropriate contexts for training, for training mind, for training mind and disciplining it and refining it and again challenging and provoking it to always, always be maximizing its potential. And the first has to do with courage. It has to do with creating the willingness or more accurately, the intention to live in every moment with equanimity, and here's the difficult part, and uncertainty. The first thing we need to recognize that is always restricting us, holding us back, and limiting us is our fear of uncertainty. We always want to know before we do something. One of my most favorite stories that I love telling over the years has to do with a student that later became a dear friend of mine and still is. And when he first called the monastery, uh, uh, the other monks answered the phone, and I was in watching a ball game, and he came, and they came in with the phone, and they said, "Roshi, you have to talk to this person. You have to talk to him. We don't want to talk to him anymore. And so I got on the phone, and he says to me, listen, I want to know, if I come to your place and meditate, how long will it be till I get enlightened? <laughs> And my reply was, you, never. And I hung up. (laughs) But he came anyway. So we always want to know, what's in it for me? Am I going to get what I want? Is tomorrow going to pay off? And that attitude, that point of view, that context for living will always, always restrict you. Now, I want you to understand when I talk about restriction, I don't only mean the sense of not going there, you know, the fear of if I do this what could happen. I want you to understand how it is molecular. It is molecular. It it, it is in us. Those fears are molecular. Those perceived limitations, that need to always have certainty about tomorrow, that need not only, you know, creates the story that keeps us back from going where we need to go, but it also, and you need to hear this, it also predefines for us two things. One, what we are experiencing in the moment, and two, gets worse, what we are permitted to experience. What we are permitted to experience. And one of the ways of understanding that is I often tell people in search of love that your your soulmate, your greatest lover, the one you've been looking for, has walked in front of you 400 times today, see? has been in your company 400 times today and whatever your perceived limitations and fears are, did not permit you to see them and will not permit you to see them so fear is molecular it is not just you know a thought i'm afraid or a or a uh, temporary emotion of fear it becomes molecular and it literally constructs for us not only what we will experience from moment to moment but what we are permitted to experience that is why i often say to people that whether it is an intimate relationship with the person you married or fell in love with or your relationship with Zen training, or you coming here tonight, when you came through that door, the results of tonight were already determined. It has nothing to do with what I do up here. It has nothing to do with what I say up here. It has everything to do with the context of your listening. Because at every moment, ego is qualifying, testing, judging, evaluating, I don't know if this guy looks like a Zen master to me. (laughs) I've heard him use the F word. (laughs) He talks about sex. What's a monk talking about sex? Whatever that is, we bring that listening, we bring that limited perception and willingness to receive. So we need to develop we need I don't want to say develop, we need to bring a conviction of courage to our work. We need to be living in equanimity, that is to say, whether we are afraid or not, whether we feel comfortable or not. You know, I tell my daughter, and I, I will repeat this probably a thousand times, I've started telling her now because she's so damn smart, she gets it. I say to her... I absolutely love you, but I don't always feel that way, you see. But I absolutely love you, and you can rely on that. And that's what's true for all of us. We all absolutely love the people we love, but there are moments we just can't even, we can't muster up the feeling of it, you see. But that, that moment, again, what's getting in the way of the experience of that love has to, be in a, has to do with the bureaucracy of ego, which has its own exclusive agenda. You see? Ego has its own exclusive agenda. So to the degree that you, again, as Pema Chodron said, at every moment we're either opening a heart or closing it, to that degree determines really what you heard tonight and the results you get out of tonight and out of every moment. We are bringing either an open heart to learn and listen uh, in every moment, or we are bringing a closed heart. This doesn't match my preconceived ideas about what it should look. Therefore, I'm not even going to think of it being possible. The practice of living brave or with courage by bringing equanimity to every moment, whether the evidence in it, is another way of talking about faith. And that's what real faith is. For most people, when they talk about faith, they talk about their faith. And when they talk about their faith, they're talking about a set of belief systems that has convinced them they don't have to be afraid. But the faith that the guys who first talked about it meant is, you know, I say to people, when you see, a, when you see someone called a hero and someone who's identified as being courageous, you need to know that that person ran into that burning building to save that life, scared shitless, but still did it. That's what a courageous person is. It's not like you're not afraid, you know, and you have the ability to not feel, not be fearful. It's about being fearful, being doubtful, being uncertain, and yet acting as if the opposite were true. And that's what we mean by if you... Want your practice to be supported, you need to bring that to it. Second, you need to. There, here's another paradigm shift, and Chikyo and I talked about it uh, briefly, and you all were witness to that earlier. And it's what Buddhists call wisdom. That for tonight's conversation is a shift needs to a shift needs to take place from where. I am listening to this kind of conceptual knowledge of the world to where I am cultivating and listening more to my intuitive wisdom. Listening to the heart, you see. Most of us make decisions on the conceptual knowledge of the world. And that knowledge is necessary. But when it comes to realizing your own inherent divinity and manifesting your inner uh, enlightenment, that will come short. That always comes short. Because in that conceptual knowledge is ego. Ego's in that. Because ego is defining and qualifying and judging and testing and compartmentalizing life there. The concept is a compartment. In other words, the the very definition of to define is what? Anybody know? Whenever you define anything, what does Webster Buddha define is to define, to fix the limits of it. Whenever you define anything, you fix the limits of it. That's what a definition is. And conceptual knowledge is nothing more than definitions. It's it's the way we conceptually define good, bad, right, wrong, happy, sad, love, and so forth. That's that world. This world is not dependent upon any of that. So we need to, and again, if you take take a look at the first support, courage and bravery, to live with uncertainty, intuitive knowledge is often ignored because this knowledge is saying, well, where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Where's the guarantee? Where's the safety? My daughter doesn't, care one bit about what's going to happen to her when she jumps up on that. Okay? Doesn't care one bit about it. It's only when she lands and hurts herself. You see? But when she sees something challenging, she goes. And you were like that too at one time. Now, well, I'm an adult. So the worst thing you want to do in life is become an adult. (laughs) That's the worst thing you want to do in life. Become an adult. Because your whole life becomes this, this conceptual knowledge. That is why many of the great masters, you know, Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. You know, uh, Suzuki Roshi calls it the beginner's mind. It's a context for seeing that does not allow for limitations. Does not allow for it. It risks. The next thing has to do with, again, love. And if you were here last month, we talked about it in this way. The only kind of love that is real is unconditional, is unconditional. So when you want to know whether you truly love someone, look at the amount of conditions or any of the conditions you have in that, you see? Real love is unconditional, and that's where real love is risky. Real love operates in the domain of uncertainty Just like real trust is not the trust most of us think about. The trust that most of us operate from is, can I trust them? The trust that most of us operate from is, I will trust them. I mean, the trust that we're talking about in enlightenment is, I will trust them. So love is like that too. Love is like, you know, when I say I love you, I love you, okay? And even when I don't feel that way, I love you. And I act that way. You know, when I want to strangle the living life out of you, I remember who you are. I remember the joy when you first were born, and so forth. And last but not least is a word that, again, you'll watch where your mind takes it, and then I'll bring you where it belongs, and that is friendship. But by, he, by you, the word friendship used here means being friends with yourself. And we talked about that last month. That is why I said last month's lesson was the other hand. You must maintain friendship with yourself. Now, how do I maintain friendship with myself? Uh, Let me say it to you this way. Someone asked me about feeling guilty, and I replied, I've never known that. I, ha- I can't talk about that. I don't know what that is. And you need to know that. I have no clue as to what that is. Because in order for me to feel guilty, I need to be critical about myself. And you need to know I've never, except for one time, one time, I'm going tell you, I've got to tell the truth. One time, and that was recent, never, ever, ever betrayed myself. I've always been my best friend. Now my daughter is, but I've always been my best friend. See? And that's what we mean by friendship here. You must maintain a friendship with yourself. If you aren't going to be your own friend, how can you expect anyone else to be? Because no one knows you better. My closest friend is a guy that I grew up with and have known for almost 50 years and so forth. He and his wife. And we refer to each other. We always address each other as bro. And when my daughter heard us say it first, she's now like when she sees, it, she says, "Hi, bro," <laughs> so forth. Uh, so, and we know each other; that we're able to finish out each other's sentences. That's how well we know each other. But no matter how well I may know him, and no matter how well he thinks he may know me, no one knows me like I do. And what makes our friendship work? is the knowledge he has of me and I have of him. And the same with his wife, because she she grew up with us, and so forth. So befriending yourself is absolute. It is one of the four supports or pillars, whichever you prefer, cornerstones of the building to support your practice. Without these four supports, practice is not sustainable. It will not be sustainable. So when you find yourself fearful about doing something, do it. In fact, I tell people when they have trained with me over the years, we can do this the short way or the long way. And the short way is whatever you are most fearful of, go do it now. The long way is we'll get you there. That's the long way and that's the longest path. So fear, Is opportunity and we generate those opportunities regularly when we let go of our obsession with certainty and we bring equanimity to every moment so it's kind of like I give my full attention to what I like but I'm not really attentive to the things I don't like because I'm not certain about them no I bring my full attention to both locations and my full intention to both locations. I listen to my heart. Now, again, as I think it came up before the break, this may take a little while before it really can be functional because most of us have forgotten what that is. Most of us have forgotten what our voice sounds like because there's so many other voices in there, if you will. So that's where, again, befriending yourself, taking care of yourself, you know, kind of like uh, learning what it was like to be a real friend to yourself as a child, that's part of that development also. Any questions? Chico, rushy have a question. How does loneliness relate? Johnny to Carson had his sidekick Chico's one. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to say that. Really, but, um, how does loneliness relate to friendship with yourself? Loneliness, and you need to know that I know a lot about that lately. Loneliness is the uh, zendo that leads to friendship with yourself. Okay. Can you explain that, Rashi? Sure. Uh, the this, the 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 reaction that ego generates when we feel lonely is again to go out and find something or someone to fill that space. The practice is the space is already filled with you. Okay, so uh, this is where you know some of the greatest teachers never spoke a single word. And they were hermits that lived in isolation, okay, and so forth. So, again, loneliness, which is something, you know, I'm quite familiar with, uh, has to do with, uh, you know, being a ground to get beyond. Because what we do with loneliness is that we start to, again, analyze, qualify, judge, criticize, test, and we go out looking for the answer. So, again, whether we call it loneliness or anything else in our life, whatever it is is most difficult for us. We need to approach it as our teacher. We need to approach it as our teacher. Because I am learning, and I have heard this from other teachers who I've listened to, that the person who can be alone is the person who can be in a relationship. The person who can't be alone should never be in a relationship. Spirituality is tough. <laughs> <laughs> it's not this little, like, like let's call upon the channeling of Raphael the angel down. It's real work. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> well, that bunch nearby that channels Avilaki And I was very tempted to say to them, how can you be channeling Avilaki Tesfada when the Dalai Lama is Avilaki Tesfada? You see? Very insulting, and so forth. So it's kind of like that real work. You know that. You've been there enough. Any other questions? I sidetracked for a moment. I gotta have my punctures once in a while. <laughs> How do you deal with um, friendship with yourself when you realize you've done something stupid or so? It's it's I mean, yeah. You judge yourself. But that's you it. Know. That that's where that's where the question comes in, isn't it? You, you, can't, you, you know the answer to that question, and the judging, the ego, the bureaucracy of the ego, prevents you from knowing that. The answer's simple. Stop criticizing yourself every time you do something stupid. You're going to do something stupid. I do a lot of stupid things, okay? And the reason why I have fun doing them is that I never criticize myself about it, okay? So we go back to the spilled milk analogy. You do something stupid, you clean up your mess. You learn what you've done, and you clean up your mess. There's no need for judgment. There's no need for criticism. And again, the judgment and the criticism isn't yours. You learned it. Someone told you that. Something. You know, when you I, I talk about many years ago, I made a trip to the South, and had an opportunity. And you might be surprised that I'm saying it that way, but it was to be in the company of KKK of the Ku Klux Klan people. Their kids, the mothers, the fathers, the whole, you know, culture. And one of the things that profoundly jumped out at me was the only response they had for the question, why do you feel that way about black people, is my mother felt that way, my father felt that way, and that's the way, you see? And you know what that is true for all of us Our judgments and criticisms are learned We you know my daughter you know never judged me about the way I changed her diaper Okay And I never judged her about pooping on me and throwing up on me you see So that's it Go to the source The source for not knowing what to do when you do something stupid is that whole, that's the bureaucracy of ego. It prevents us, like I said a moment ago. So you've got to do some preventive medicine here, not when you do it. So here's the preventive medicine. Arnold, tonight you say, all criticisms, self and of others, stop. Even when you're driving? Even when you're driving. (laughs) Or you do it the way I do it. The way I do it is this. I you know I drive and someone does something and I go ah! <laughs> and then I'm like, well that was really funny. <laughs> that was really profound. You really sounded furious. What if you you know? this did something stupid? Well, <laughs> you don't criticize her either. That's wiz- <laughs> That's wisdom. <laughs> so you see. So it's kind of like, you you know, uh, when I was very young. I, my father was changing the oil to his car, and I crawled underneath and watched him do it. And he was the the nut was stuck, and he's pulling on the wrench. And next thing I know is that it slips and pops me in the head. And I'm like, "Damn, I can't believe you did that!" And he looked at me and he said, "Go get it taken care of. What are you sitting there for? Go 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 inside and get it taken care of." And that was my first lesson in all my opinion about that doesn't matter i'm bleeding <laughs> okay but that's the power of the bureaucracy of ego you 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 would rather bleed you know than give up your opinions about what just happened to you and when we back to ellen's you know example when we are criticizing those we love we're bleeding the relationship aren't we mm-hmm. i see and that's what it always comes back to what is my intention here? So if your intention is to realize your inner divinity and manifest your inner enlightenment in the world, you need to do the things that do that and support that and stop doing the things that don't. And among it, uh, clearly, the most profound is to give up, give up criti- you know, criticism and judgment about yourself and others. Now, that doesn't mean, like, that doesn't mean we say, well, you know, uh, who's that nut in Syria doing what he's doing? That doesn't mean we say, well, you know, you must have had a bad childhood, and we dismiss <laughs> it. No, that doesn't mean that. It just means that when we do whatever is necessary for that, we bring no conceptual judgment of it. Just get the job done. You know, it's kind of like when... When, you know, in Vietnam, the the teaching was get on the boat, go do your job, do your job, get back on the boat, go home. That's it. You don't think about it. You don't get into the concept about what just happened or what you have to do because otherwise you're not going to be able to do it and you'll be dead. You see? So life operates that way, too. If you do something stupid, clean up your mess and move on. That's all you got to do. It's all that's required of you. Okay? Clean up your mess and move on. And this is a lesson I'm, try, I'm trying to teach Katie now, okay, because she's, somehow she's at that place now where, you know, if she thinks she's bad. She starts to cry and feels that. terrible and pleads, tell me I'm not bad. And I repeatedly say to her, it's okay to mess up. It's, you know, I still love you, okay. You don't have to lie. You don't have to hide it and so forth. There's nothing to be afraid of when you tell the truth or when you make mistakes, but there's nothing I can do about that. Can you apologize to yourself and say, that was really stupid and I'm sorry it happened, forget it? Well, that's that's about moving on, Uh okay? And that's the same thing as just choosing not to get in, not to indulge that dialogue, Uh okay? That's the same thing. Okay, I messed up, sorry, move on, you know? Now with other people, you clean up your mess in the way that's appropriate. So it's kind of like you don't go, yeah, yeah, I hurt you so what? Uh, I'm sorry. You, know, you do that with me and you're out of here. Okay? So you do what's appropriate. But again, what what benefits you or anyone else when you're sitting around beating yourself up? You know? It's, it's, the Zen story about that has to do with a samurai that comes before an ancient Zen master one day and asks about the definition of heaven and hell. And the master says... You claim to be a samurai? You claim to come from that whole shogun clan? How stupid you are. How can a sam? You must be a stupid samurai. At that moment the samurai starts to draw a sword. And the master says, hell. And the samurai gets it and he puts the sword back and he says, heaven. saying? Now I don't know if that would benefit the master more than the samurai. <laughs> but nonetheless, that was the teaching. So when we get judgmental and critical and we're beating ourselves up or someone else, hell. When we stop that, heaven. And what else more importantly happens is that clarity comes in. You know, most of the most of the people we cannot forgive in our life, it's the conceptual knowledge that will not allow us to forgive. It's the bureaucracy of ego. And if you know anything again about Webster Buddha's, you know I often tell people: forget the Dhammapada, forget the Bible, forget the Torah. Get a dictionary if you want your life to work, because Buddha, uh, Webster Buddha knows what he's talking about. His definition of forgiveness, or to forgive, means to give up, as in having resentment. To just give up, just say. Well, I often t- I tell the story this way: this um, my nephew, who's now six foot. Eight, nine, or something, big guy. When he was very little, we, our whole family went to the mall together, and he was about three or four at the time too. And my father had his hand, and they were walking together. And he wanted to go into a, a toy store, and his parents said, my sister and her husband, no, you can't go in there. So he threw a tantrum, and my mother's turning to my father, said, I'll oh, pick him up. My father said, No, I'm not going to pick him up. And my sister saying. Just let him go, my father's just gonna let him go. So they're walking, I'm walking behind this watching this going, and Ronnie's screaming, yelling, tantrum, screaming, yelling. A few minutes later I hear him say, Oh, this isn't working. <laughs> 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 and he stopped. And at that moment everybody saw what happened and he got to go to the toy store. You see? So in those moments when we're all riled up, clarity gets fogged up and you can't see what's next, and so forth. When you let go of that, clouds move away, the waters calm down, and you see clearer. So for no other reason, that's why. Practice consists of three focused, three focused efforts. Always calm the spirit and return to the source. So in these moments, like we've been talking about for about five minutes now, when you feel that stressed out judgment about yourself when you feel fearful about the uncertainty of the next moment, the practice is to calm the spirit and return to the source. Now practically translated, that has to do with again, living a life of mindfulness where you are able to identify the stress in your body and where it is and what its, in, you know, what it, what its lesson is and using the breath returning to the source. So here we go back to what I said through the whole night and for many years. If you have no intimate experience with, you know, the Buddha said, the mind's natural state is tranquil all the time. The only time it doesn't seem that way is when we're stirring it up and so forth. So if you don't have the experience of that peaceful existence within you, that source, that core reality of tranquility within you, If you're not visiting that regularly through, you know, meditation and, and, you know, maybe communing with nature, if you're not doing that, then you're not familiar with it. And if you're not familiar with it, you have no place to take refuge. So, in order to calm the spirit and return the source, we must first have a familiarity, an intimate familiarity, with spirit, with mind and its natural state. And in calming it, we use the breath. In all of Zen Buddhism, there is the emphatic teaching that breath is our connection with the universe. Breath is our connection with God. Breath is our connection with life. And so the use of the breath is not just um, um, uh, the mechanics. It is the key. It is is the, uh, the sutra, the link, the thread between you and heaven. So we stop, we breathe in. Then we decide. Then we forgive. Then we let go with that exhale. So when I do mindfulness training here on Tuesday nights from six to seven, I talk to people about riding the breath. And when you inhale, you are bringing your attention. When you exhale, you are letting go. So you're bringing your attention to that part of your body that feels stress in some way or the other, and when you exhale, you're releasing that. You're just letting go. So that's what we mean by calm the spirit and return to the source. (coughs) Cleanse the body and spirit by removing all malice, selfishness, and greed. So we go back to again being aware that when the ego is at work, the bureaucracy of ego is present, you will find that there is a sent- the word malice may seem a little too harsh, so we'll say resentment. You will find that there's some kind of resentment, some kind of jealousy, <clears throat> some kind of, you know, coveting going on. The practice in, in any authentic spiritual path is the removal of that, the removal of, um, what did I say next, the, of selfishness, again, which is the ego, the bureaucracy of ego, And greed. Now, the word is desire, but desire is greed. So, most people, when you take the word greed, they say, Well, I'm not greedy. Yes, you are. When you're desiring something, that's greed. Okay? Whether it's the chocolate over there or, you know, somebody else's wealth. That's greed. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So, cleansing the body and spirit by removing malice, selfishness, and desire. And if you know anything about cleansing the body, When you have done a really toxic cleansing of the body, desire leaves with it. Your uh, appetite for the things that made it toxic disappears with it. So that is both a reality about cleansing the body and a metaphor about cleansing the mind. And last but not least, we talked about or least touched upon. Be grateful for the gifts given to you by the universe whichever you prefer, God, your family, nature, and fellow human beings, which translates gratitude every day. Focus on what you are grateful for and not ego's desire. Focus on what you have and not ego's desire. And when you see what you have, see it as it really is. You might think, back to the, uh, Argument between the GOP and the and the Democratic Party. You might think I worked for that and I created that, but the truth is, matter really is a lot of people were involved in making that possible for you. You know, it's like truckers have a saying: uh, anything you have came by a truck, including that kid. You see. (laughs) anything you have because if the truck didn't deliver the stuff the doctors in the hospital used the kid may not have come and so forth so there was a community of people and one of my most profound experiences has to do flying to Japan one time and I got there I had been it was an 18-hour flight and I got there and was in Tokyo and uh, got into my room and left you know because the sun was coming up It was early morning and I got outside in Tokyo and I saw them delivering the milk, delivering this, delivering that, picking up the trash, doing all this. There was this whole network of people getting the city ready for everybody else to come to the city and do what they had to do. So be grateful for everything you have. Be grateful for the people in your life. You know, one of the uh, meal sutras in Zen is... We are forever grateful for your sacrifice. May we be worthy to receive you. And believe it or not, that is a sutra to the food that you're eating, the sacrifice of the, of the vegetables, the sacrifice of the people in the fields who picked it, the sacrifice of the workers who brought it to the supermarket. Mindful of all of that, if you are if you if you are grateful, you begin to see a world that was hidden from you before, because gratitude opens your eyes to see you really aren't alone there's a whole community supporting you act accordingly that's my story and I'm sticking to it and Rhonda's not here so I can go as late as I want she'll <laughs> just tell her we stopped at 9 cuz she'll charge me more <laughs> So, as always, I loved being with you. And it was a pleasure and a privilege to be with you tonight. And I just want to make a few announcements before you go. If you uh, were given a flyer tonight and you thought, well, I got that last month, it's revised because there were some errors. And it has to do with our annual Zen training that begins again in September. And I want to strongly encourage you to look beyond your perceived limitations And sign up and come and practice at the monastery with us. Also, we have a completely new website. And if you haven't seen it yet, go to pinewind.org or thezensociety.org and take a look at it. I think you're going to like it. And if you don't, tough. (laughs) (laughs) I created it. And I don't really care. (laughs) No, yes, I do. That's the truth. So uh, visit that. Come visit us. and, you know, I, as I was driving here tonight, I was thinking about the reason why we came to Cherry Hill, whether some of you don't know it or not, is because when the economy changed, people came up with limitations to come out to Shemung because everybody thinks Shamong's at the end of the world. So I wanted to say tonight, sarcastically, I came to the world. To All the way from Shamong to be with you tonight. So it's really not that far away. Come and visit us sometime. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Go ahead.